Good morning, church, and happy Sabbath. It is, it is good to be here and to see you all. And uh, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, because God has allowed us to live uh, another year. We are, we are not at the end of the year yet, but we are getting close to that. And the Lord has been merciful and graceful in the sense that He gracious, in the sense that He has allowed us to live one more year. And uh, I am sure that if I were to ask, you would certainly tell me that it was probably not an easy year. Or maybe you have gone through different things that may have been difficult in your life. But this is the time of the year when people uh, come together to be with their families. They come together to, to share gifts. And they come together to remember the birth of Jesus. Now we are sure, we, are, uh, we can be sure that Jesus was not born on December 25th. It's very improbable. But we know that Jesus was born. And for that alone, we should be thankful. Because when you have a child, uh, God has given us the privilege of having two children. When you have a child, you look at a child and you always wish the best. I don't know of any parent that has ever had a child. that They will look at the child and think, I want my child to go and die in a battlefield. This is what I really desire for my child. No one would ever think that. Now, eventually, some, uh, as people grow up, some people feel like maybe joining the military, joining the army, and they will have to go to the battlefield. And unfortunately, fatalities happen and people lose their lives there. But even those who go to the battlefield to defend their country, they don't leave home thinking, this is what I want to do. This, here what I want to do, what I want to do. I want to go and die in the battlefield. They want to go defend their country, but they hope to be able to come back. But the truth is that Jesus, from the time he accepted to come to this earth, from the time he left his throne in glory, and accepted to come and be born as a baby. Be born of a human being named Mary. From that time, from the time Jesus had planned this with the Father. He was already aware that the whole, the entire purpose of His coming would be to die for us. And He was willing to go through all of that. To come and be born as a baby and to grow up and to be exposed to the dangers of this world. To be exposed to the temptations of this world. And he bore in mind that one day he would lay down his life for us. So who is this Jesus who was willing to do this? Who is this being that was born of Mary? Whose name was even given by by the angel of the Lord. That was the name that Joseph was supposed to call him. You will call him Jesus. And why? What does Jesus mean? Because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus was to be the Savior. That was his name. That was his name meant. But who is this Jesus? And why would he accept to come and to take a death that was supposed to be ours? 
It was some time ago, maybe a hundred years ago or more than that, the two men were traveling together on a train. And they both were lawyers. And they were talking about several different things until one of them said, you know what, we've been talking about the weather, we've been talking about uh, the train ticket price, we've been talking about all different things. Why don't we get down to something that is really, really important and relevant? Why don't we talk about things like uh, where do we come from and is there really a God? Why don't we talk about, don't we talk about those deeper things in life? And the other lawyer said, yes, uh, that's good. We can talk about that. And if there is a God, there is there a Jesus, and was Jesus really God's son? Why don't we talk about this? Now, one of the lawyers was a Christian. The other one was an atheist. And the atheist one started to, to uh, give out his arguments. And the Christian lawyer started to feel that he was at a disadvantage. He was at a tremendous disadvantage. And as much as he tried to counter-argument what the other lawyer was saying, he wouldn't be able, he wasn't being able to keep up. And all of the arguments of the atheist lawyer were, were causing a great deal of pain in the Christian lawyer. But finally, this atheist turned, turned to the Christian lawyer and he said, You know what, I think... I think about you that you simply are a Christian because you happen to be born in this country. And so you're a Christian just by accident, by an accident of your birth. Why aren't you a Buddhist? Why aren't you a, a, Confuci a follower of Confucius? Didn't they say good things? Didn't they say things that if followed would really elevate you? And the Christian was feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. And the atheist continued, Why aren't you not a Muslim? Didn't Muhammad teach good things? And the Christian one became more and more embarrassed. You just happen to be a Christian because you were born here. And this is the thing to do. Aren't all religions good? Aren't all religions equal? They picked out their man and you picked out yours. And they follow him and you follow yours. But aren't all those men good? Why do you have to follow this particular man? And the Christian man was completely demoralized. And these two men, you may have heard of them. One of them was Robert Ingersoll. This was the atheist lawyer. This man uh, employed much of his time traveling around the states around the United States and uh, saying things that were anti-Christian and trying to demoralize the faith of the Christian people. He was a brilliant orator, a great speaker. And he would draw the masses in his speeches and he would say things that would demoralize the faith of people. Faith of people. And apparently he, he had good pleasure in doing that. The other man, the other lawyer was this man, General Lou Wallace. He was uh, later on named, appointed governor of the state of New Mexico, even though at the time New Mexico was still a territory. Now this man wrote a book after this, after all of this, and uh, after his time as governor of New Mexico, he wrote a book that in that book he was trying to uh, depict his experience with Christ and how he came to really know Jesus Christ. 
And the title of that book is a book that eventually became a movie. It's called Ben-Hur. And in that book, he tried to give honest uh, explanations about why he was a Christian and why he believed in Jesus Christ. Now, this is a good book, and those who watched the movie, it was a good movie. But I would say that there is certainly more than what Lou Wallace was able to describe in that book. There must be more for, about Jesus so that people would be willing to follow him. It is not only because someone is born in a Christian family or in a Christian country that they should follow Jesus. My question today is, does the Bible offer you solid reasons to believe in Jesus Christ? Does the Bible offer you solid reasons to believe that Jesus was, is, and will forever be God? Does the Bible offer you solid reasons to believe Him, to believe that Jesus was who He was, or was Jesus just a hoax? Now, the Bible tells us, that Jesus had a solid message that people followed him. Now think about this. You know, you've heard that in, after Jesus went back to heaven and the apostles continued to carry on the message of the gospel and more people joined the early church, there came the time when people were willing, were suffering persecution, but they were still willing to die because of love, out of love for Christ. Christians were not being welcomed in this world. And all of you certainly know stories of how Christians were thrown to the lions. They were burnt at the stake. They had their heads chopped off. They were thrown to wild animals for the amusement of the population. We all know these stories. But here is the question. Why did these people, why were they willing to sacrifice their lives? Why were they willing to die just simply out of loyalty for a certain man, a carpenter of Nazareth? Was it because they were stubborn? You know, stubbornness would never lead people to die for anything. People may be stubborn, but when they get to the point where their life is at stake, they will certainly get out of their stubborn, stubborn position and they will move in a different direction. But that's not, that's not what happened to the Christians, to the early Christians. They never really gave in. Even in face of persecution and in face of death. They fastened their loyalty to that man. Who died upon the cross and they could not deny his name. Even with a pinch of incense, Christians were called to join the Roman citizens and come before an altar that had been erected to worship the, the Roman emperor. And all they had to do was to follow along in that line and to drop a small pinch of incense. And by doing that, they would be pledging their allegiance to the Roman emperor and their life would be saved. But they were not willing to do that. They were not willing to do that because they believed in that man of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, their Savior. So what was it? What was it that caused their attention to be fixed on that man and on that man alone? 
What was it that built their faith and even their, their death in Jesus, upon the belief in Jesus Christ? Well, Christians have one source of truth and one source of truth alone. It is this book, the Holy Bible. And it doesn't matter whether today or back then, that's the only rule of faith for the Christian. The faith of the Christian person is always, has always been based and built on the Word of God. It was not different then than it is today. Those early Christians saw in the person of Jesus Christ the perfect fulfillment of the prophecies of the Bible. They compared the prophecies and they looked at the man. They looked at the man and they compared, they looked at the prophecies and they said, yes, this must be, unquestionably, this must be him. This must be the man in whom we're going to place our faith. Now, you know that this country, Canada, is a country that has been built on, on it's a land of immigrants. It has been built uh, originally, you know, with the, the strength and the hard work of two people, of uh, two nations. But over the years, many people from different nations have come to this country. And they found in this land a, a welcoming land where people can come and uh, find uh, better opportunities for them and for their children. Now, back in the day, maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, some families from Europe, they would send their children first while they would still finish organizing things. And they would send their children to meet family, to meet uh, relatives who were already in this country. Now the relative living here in this country, maybe he, they had never seen the child. And so they didn't really know what the child would look like. And so the parents would ahead of time send in the mail pictures of their children. And then so when the, the family here in Canada received the pictures, they would know who they should be expecting. And so the parents would send the children and then the, 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 the ship would arrive there at the port and the relatives here in Canada would be at the port waiting for the children and they would look at the picture and they would look at the people getting off the boat. They would look at the picture and look at the children getting off the ship. And finally they would say, here, that's the child we're looking for. That's the child we're expecting. It's the child whose face matches the face we have here in the picture. And Christians in the early Christian church, in the first century, for them it was no different. They would look at the prophecies of what they had as the Bible in the Old Testament. They would look at the prophecies and they would say, this is the man. This is him. It must be him. That's why in John chapter 145 we read that Philip found Nathanael and told him and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It must be him. And then it first was Andrew, then Peter, and then Philip. And Philip goes ahead and calls Nathaniel. And so one by one, they were telling the other, we found him, we found him. There can be no other. It's him of whom Moses and all the prophets have prophesied. And then the early church in Acts 18.28 says that he powerfully refuted the Jews, this is Paul, in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was 
the Christ. In fact, this is not Paul, this was Apollos, who was a great preacher, uh, a great preacher in the first century. And along with Paul, he was preaching Christ. And Apollos was preaching and telling that Jesus, proving and contending with the Jews and proving that according to scripture, there could be no other than Jesus of Nazareth to be him, to be the Messiah. And so he was convinced and he was persuaded and he would share the message that Jesus was the man spoken of in the word of God. And the impact of this whole thing was so great that although the powers, all powers of hell were let loose and all the legions of evil were against that infant church, that infant church moved on, moved forth, conquering and to conquer. And it could not be defeated because it was grounded in the word of God. And I'll say this to my dear beloved church here in Belleville. If we want to see a church that is thriving. If we want to see a church that will conquer, be conquering and to conquer. If we want to see a church that will never be defeated by any evil force. We need to be grounded in the word of God. This must be more than just a simple uh, uh, assumption. This must be something real in your life and in my life. Because we are the ones who can actually support and sustain this church. We are the ones whom God has called into this church in Belleville. And we are the ones whom God has called to take to, to live the gospel out here in this community. And so we have to be grounded in the Bible for ourselves. It's not because I come on Sabbath and there is a Sabbath school teacher who has prepared the Sabbath school lesson and will teach a biblically based lesson. Or because the pastor or the preacher will come up here and preach from the Bible. You must have your own experience. You must be one of these stalwarts here in this church. You must be some of the people who will keep this church alive and well and never defeated. It. it is a call for you and for me, for each and every one of us. Those early Christians, if it weren't for their faith, if it weren't for their belief in the Bible, and their willingness to believe in the Bible and in the Bible alone, if it weren't for that, we would not have the gospel today. They paid a high price. They died. They sacrificed their lives out of love for Christ and out of faith, faithfulness to his teachings in the Bible. We all know that the Bible is divided into uh, sections. I believe we all do. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first part is the Old Testament, which may be not a, a, a good title that was given because it looks like as if it's something that is old and we don't care about it anymore, right? It is, it is as good as the new. It is the, the ancient, but always valid, always worthy. Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written, as you may uh, know, before the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which was the last book to be written of those who make up the, the Old Testament, the book of Malachi was written some 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And normally when you read the life of a man, 
when you read someone's biography, you really start with the birth, right? So let's start with this uh, logical point of departure. And I'm going to take you to the Old Testament, not the New Testament. I'm going to take you to the Old Testament. And we're going to see a prophecy in the Bible that was written some 700, e 700 years before Jesus was born. And it's found in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And Micah says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Of all the thousand places where Jesus could have been born, of all the thousands of places that the, the world might have chosen, the long finger of the old prophet comes right down to Bethlehem. As for you, Bethlehem. Now, if Jesus Christ was not born in Bethlehem, according to the prediction of the prophet Micah, I would not believe in him as the Messiah. And it wouldn't be the right person to believe, because... It wouldn't have been in the right place. Jesus has got to be born in that particular town of Bethlehem. Now let's talk about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. His birth in Bethlehem did not make much sense. Because his parents were not from there. Mary and uh, the home of Mary and Joseph as you may know was Nazareth. So let's go to Nazareth. This is, this is a picture of Nazareth. Just, be, just before Christ was born, the, the time had come for Christ to be born, but there was an order that went out, which you can read about in the second chapter of the book of Luke. And there this order, went, going out from the Roman emperor, said that every man must return to their place, to the place of his father for the purpose of the census and the purpose of taxation. And so that's the reason why at the last moment before the birth of Jesus, by the order of a foreign emperor, the order came and Mary and Joseph went down to, to Bethlehem. Bethlehem sits almost 90 miles, almost 150 kilometers from, uh, uh, distant from Nazareth. They had to travel all of that in order that it be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. Out of Bethlehem he must come. So Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Because it was not his family's home. Was an event out of the ordinary. It was a remarkable thing. But it had to be so. Because prophecy had predicted so. There is a geographical limitation. As far as the one who is supposed to be the Messiah can be. And if it's not, he's not born in Bethlehem, then I wouldn't believe him. But let's take a step further. Let's go beyond this. What about the nationality of Jesus Christ? Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, but what about his nationality? Could he be a Brazilian? Could he be a Nigerian? Could he be a Canadian? Well, the book of Genesis in, the chapter, in chapter 49 tells an interesting story. Here is Jacob, the old patriarch, and Jacob, whose name is Israel. And because his name was changed, now, uh, not because his name was changed, his name is Israel because his name was changed. But now he's in his deathbed. 
And I want you to picture this because these are the last moments of Jacob's life, of Israel's life. And he calls each one of his 12 sons. And while he has his boys all around him, all about him, the Spirit of God rests upon this dying man. And out of his mouth comes prophecy. And he's given a blessing to each one of his sons. And when he comes to Judah, his fourth son. In verse 10, the Bible says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until what? Shiloh comes. Now it's known even today, it's a common belief among, among Jews and even to this day that Shiloh is one of the names of the Messiah. And so Jacob, Israel is saying, out of Judah, Shiloh will come. Out of Judah, the Messiah will come. And the scepter will never be removed from Judah until Shiloh shall come. So the man in whom we have to place our faith, the man in whom we are supposed to believe as the Messiah, he must be born in Bethlehem, but he must be a Jew of the tribe of Judah. And that's why the Bible calls him in Revelation that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. If he's not a Jew of the tribe of Judah, he's not the one who deserves your faith and your belief. But what about his family? What about Jesus' family? The Bible talks about his family in Isaiah 7, 14. The Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold what? A virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name what? Emmanuel. So the man, that the Bible takes the position that the man who is going to be the Messiah, he must be born in Bethlehem, he must be a Jew of the tribe of Judah, and he must be born of a virgin. He must be virgin born. If Jesus Christ is not virgin born, then I would not believe in him. And so at this point, I think you and I have to agree that there is only one person. There is only one person in this entire universe that anyone has ever acknowledged to be born of a virgin. And that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so he's got to be the man because he was born in Bethlehem. He was a Jew. He was born of a virgin. So he's the only man. And that is true. But there is still much more evidence in the Bible. I'm going now to turn to Isaiah 53 in verse 7 that says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not what? He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. And so let's compare this. Let's compare this to Matthew chapter 26 verses 62 and 63. And the high priest stood up and said to him, him being Jesus, right? Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus said what? didn't say anything he kept silent and the high priest said to him I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the son the Christ the son of God and so if Jesus had taken a different stance and if he had 
taken a different stance. And if he had made a, a, a passionate defense about himself, he would not be the one of whom Isaiah had prophesied. He must be born in Bethlehem. He must be a Jew of the tribe of Judah. He must be born of a virgin. But he must stay silent even in face of his opponents. And that's what Matthew 26, 62, 63 says. That he kept silence, silent. But there is something else. In verse 9 of Isaiah 53. The same chapter that said that Jesus would be silent. In the sequence, in verse 9 now, Isaiah says that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so we know that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, don't we? And that had been predicted right there in the Bible, that his grave would be assigned with wicked men. Men, And so if Jesus had not been crucified among two wicked men, he would not be the one fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. And you and I were not supposed to believe him. But the, details go, the tale goes on because it says that he was with a rich man in his death. Well, the Bible records that uh, no sooner than Jesus died... Two of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem openly proclaimed themselves as followers of Jesus. One of them was Nicodemus. And the other one was Joseph of Arimathea. And the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea came uh, to the palace to uh, Pilate. He asked for an interview with him. And he was granted that interview. And he asked to have the body of Jesus. He claimed the body of Jesus and he uh, took the body of Jesus and he buried him in, in a tomb that he had just built. And so according to the prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus was with a, with a rich man in his death. And so the man we are looking for is not only the one who had been born, he had to be born in Bethlehem. The one who was a Jew of the tribe, tribe of Judah. The one who had something unusual about his birth. He's got to be the man who does not defend himself. He's got to be the man that dies with wicked men and is buried by wealthy men. And if he doesn't fulfill all these requirements, then he's not the man spoken of by the prophets. But there's still something else that I want to show you. And it's found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 12. And this is a prophecy that points to the betrayal of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13 the Bible says and I said to them if it is good in your sight give me my wages but if not never mind so they weighed out 30 how many 30 shekels of silver as my wages so I'll go back again I want to make sure that nobody is sleeping so they weighed how many 30 shekels of silver as my wages then the Lord said to me throw it to the potter that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, uh, more than that, probably, more than that, probably the most surprised man in court was Judas. Judas himself, because Judas betrayed Jesus. But Judas, I can tell you, 
I can, I can imagine that Judas was quite sure that Jesus could get away from that, could get out of that. Because Jesus was all powerful. So maybe it's not too big of a deal if I betray Jesus. If I surrender him to the, to the, his opponents to die, because after all, Jesus is all powerful. Even if they shackle him, even if they tie him, he can untie himself. He can get free. He can break free because Jesus can do all things. But Judas was surprised that Jesus was silent all the time. Jesus didn't do anything to save himself. And so, moment by moment went by. And Judas watched the whole thing go on. And finally, when the death penalty was pronounced, the record of the Bible is that Judas took the money and the little bag with the 30, silver, 30 pieces of silver, and he rushed up to the high priest, and he pulled upon the hem of his cloak and said, Let him go, let him go, because he's innocent. And he says in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the priests look at him and say, uh, what's in that for us? We have nothing to do with that. That's your own business. That's your problem now. You betrayed him. And so Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver and with horror, he looks at those pieces of silver and throws them in the floor in the same temple where he had made a bargain. And the record of scripture is that he went out from that place and he hanged himself. And now here's the money right there on the floor. And what would they do with it? What would the priests do with it? And one of the priests said, let's pick it up and let's put it back in the treasure, treasury. But the other priest said, no, that's blood money. Don't touch it. And so finally one of them said, maybe this is what we'll do. We'll take the money, not put it back in the treasury, but we'll use it to buy a potter's field. And they bought a potter's field where the unknowns and the impoverished of society could be buried. This is the record of the Bible. And there is a potter's field that was bought with the money of the betrayal with the 30 pieces of silver. And so if it had not happened that way, you and I should not believe in him. Because that's what the Bible had predicted that with the 30 shekels of silver... They would buy a potter's field. But I want to show you something now that will be my last evidence as to how you and I are expected to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. This is the last piece of information. I want to take you to, to a psalm in the Bible. Well, we, know, we all know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want and and so it goes but i want to take you to psalm 22 not psalm 23 and maybe psalm 22 is not one that many people are familiar with but i want you to take there and to look at uh sorry to look at verse uh one in psalm 22 psalm 22 verse 1 says my god my god why hast thou what forsaken me maybe for a moment you may be thinking that we quoted the the wrong text that those were the words of jesus jesus said my god my god why hast thou forsaken me but these words were recorded here first in psalm 22 verse 1 
It is in the Old Testament. It is in the 22nd Psalm. It's not wrong. And David wrote those words. Now, where did David get those words? Is my question. Did David get those words from Jesus? Or did Jesus get those words from David? Was Jesus quoting David when he was up there on the cross? Or did David quote Jesus prophetically? Well, David was a man who was a prophet. He was an extraordinary man. He was led by the Holy Spirit, as were all the prophets in the Bible. They were ordinary men who lived an extraordinary experience. And I believe that David was led down the corridor of time. And by prophetic revelation from God, David was able to stay, stand right there at the foot of the cross. Remember that song that says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? So I believe that David was there. David was one of those who were there. He was there in prophetic vision. And David was there standing at the foot of the cross. And he heard the words of Jesus saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And as David is there in prophetic vision, hearing Jesus say that, David was so impressed that he wrote it down in his psalm, Psalm 22. Some of, some of you might be thinking maybe that this is not how it happened. Maybe that it's only Jesus quoting David. But look at what verse 16 says in Psalm 22. It says, For dogs surround me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now David has not been, has not had one of his hands or both his hands or both his feet actually pierced by any of his enemies. So David must have been writing that in prophetic vision as he saw Jesus suffering right there on the cross. Every nation in the history of this world until modern times, every nation has had the death penalty and a method by which that penalty was executed. But it was only the Romans that came up with the cross. It was only the Romans that came up with crucifying people. They nailed their hands, they nailed their feet, and exposed them to torture under the sun. And many times those people hanging up there on the cross, they would die of dehydration. They would die of starvation. Sometimes they died of gangrene. Their hands, they died of blood poisoning. And you know it was the Roman method to prolong death. But what does that have to do with the prophecy I'm talking about? It is because David lived about 1,000 years. David lived about 1,000 years before Christ. And we know that Rome... We know that Rome was, was founded by uh, Romulus and Remus, right? And that was about the year 753. Actually not about, but there is a date recorded in history. April 21st, 753 before Christ. That's the date of the foundation of Rome. 
And David is writing about having his hands pierced. Or is talking about crucifixion at a time when Rome, Rome was not even founded. So David must be talking about something prophetic down the course of history. And so we must be sure that this is the man the Bible is talking about. But David doesn't stop there. He not only talks about, why, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And he also talks about having the hands pierced. But he goes on to say that they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. And we know that this is what happened when Jesus was up there on the cross. And so the early church. The early church with all these things in their mind. They would rather die than be disloyal to the man of whom all the prophets had prophesied. They would rather die, lay down their lives, than betray the one who gave his life for them on the cross. That's not the end of the story because the book of Hosea in the sixth chapter in verse 2 says that he will raise up on the third day. And indeed, as you and I know, Jesus rose up on the third day. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 6 to 9, that God's God raised us up with Jesus so that we could even right now begin to experience the joy of living as daughters and sons of God, heirs of his kingdom. Someone has said, and I don't know how accurate this is, but it is, uh, it at least gives us a, a picture of it or something to think about. That there have been more than 105 billion people that have already lived on this earth. How can be, how can we possibly find one man upon whom we can build our faith out of a pool of, of 105 billion people? It is an overwhelming task, yet not so overwhelming. So let's take a computer, the, the most powerful computer man could ever come up with. And let's punch into that computer the man we are looking for. That it must be born in Bethlehem. That it must be a Jew out of the tribe of Judah. That he's, there, there's got to be something unusual about his birth. And that he can't be accepted. Uh, he can't be accepted unless he is denied by man and he remains silent. And he must die with criminals. And he must be claimed by a rich man. He must have his hands and his feet pierced. His garments must be gambled on. He must be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And he must cry out, my God, my God. And he must rise again on the third day. Punch all that material in this super powerful computer. And you can put there 105 billion names. You can put there 200 billion. You can put there 1 billion, billion, billion names there. And out of that algorithm, there is only one name that will come up. And it will be Jesus Christ, the carpenter of Nazareth. He is the only one. Not one prophet announced the coming of Buddha. Not one prophet announced the coming of Muhammad. There is only one man that can claim your loyalty today and always. Not only by the sound of his own voice, but because all aspects of his birth, life and death 
were spelled out in meticulous detail before he was ever born. There is no such case for any other man ever born on earth. There is no case whatsoever in any court of law by any amount of evidence, either circumstantial or evidential. There is no case, absolutely none, for any man save Jesus Christ. And so, this is the man, the only one who can claim your loyalty. And the only one to whom, uh, to whom I appeal, to, the only one I appeal to, to you, whom you can place your trust. And I'd like to invite you to, to think, as I believe Sister Sandra has a song, don't you? You don't. That's all right. Okay. But I want you to think, as we sing together, as we sing together number 309, that the one who is calling you, is inviting you to a full surrender, is the one who was born in Bethlehem. Even though he was born as a helpless babe, he grew up to be a man, a man of courage, who gave his life for you. And he's only asking you that you fully trust him. He's only asking you that you surrender completely to him. But that you surrender fully. That you believe him in everything he says. It's more than just you know, acknowledging that Jesus is the one whom the prophet spoke about. Because acknowledgement is not going to take you down the road even to the point of death. It was more than just acknowledgement that made early Christians die for the cause of Christ. It was because they entered into a personal relationship with Him. And so my appeal to you this morning is that if you have never made such a real commitment, that you make one today. My appeal to you this morning is that if you have been coming to this church just because it's the right thing to do, that you think it twice and you renew your commitment to Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to die for you. Jesus was willing to be born as a baby knowing that he had to die in the hands of his of evildoers. But yet he went all the way to the end. And even when the burden of your sins and my sins were crushing him down. Even when he was down there in the garden of Gethsemane. And he almost couldn't bear it. He said, Father, if possible, take this cup away from me. However, your will be done and not mine. Even then, he was willing to submit his will to, to, to the Father. And he went all the way to the end. And so, why can't we give back to Jesus all that we are, all that we have? And so, if this is your desire... If it is your desire to make a commitment today. I'm going to tell you. We have a baptism plan for the first Sabbath in May. You may not have heard of this. Because nobody said it. But I'm announcing it today. We'll have a baptism here in this church in the spring. In the first Sabbath in May. And we have two people who are being prepared for that baptism. Just yesterday... Uh, two days ago, I received a call of someone who says that they want to be baptized. 
they're having Bible studies and, uh, and they want to be baptized. There is, there is something still that they need to, to uh, prepare to do in preparation for baptism, but they're willing to be baptized in, in May. And there is also our dear sister Elizabeth Teal. Elizabeth is, is decided for baptism and she will be baptized in May by God's grace. Now, if there is anyone still here that maybe hasn't been baptized yet and would like to make that commitment, we will we'll not baptize you today, but you can prepare for May. And between now and May, we'll pray for you. Between now and the month of May, the first Sabbath in May, we'll be, we'll be journeying together. We'll be praying for you. The church will be supporting you. And if this is your desire, when we start singing number 309, I ask you to stand up. But I'll also ask for those, you may remain standing, sister, you can stand. But I'll also ask those who maybe are already baptized, they would like to renew their commitment to God, that they also stand as we sing, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender considering a decision for baptism we're still seeing verse 3 but if you are considering I'll ask you to come to the front and uh, this may be a difficult decision but we are not baptizing you today and you may come to the front with all the questions you have no one has it all together we are all learning we're all journeying together and so if this is your desire you, you're simply signifying that you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and, and that's all that I'm asking today. If this is your desire, you can come to the front as we sing verse 3 now. And then we'll pray for you. All to Jesus I surrender. Make me Savior, holy thine. Let me 
feel the Holy Spirit truly know that thou art mine. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath day. We thank you that you allowed us to be here in your presence today. We know, Lord, that Jesus came to this earth not as an adventure, but he came with a mission. And he came, Lord, because he had each and every one of us here today in mind. Lord, as I think that when Jesus up there on the cross, he could see down the, the course of history, down through the centuries, and he could see me, Lord. And when I think that it was my sins that nailed him up there on the cross, when I think that it was my stubbornness, that it was my rebellion that caused Jesus to suffer, oh Lord, forgive me and help me, Lord, to help me, Lord, to be faithful to you. It was my sin that kept him up there, Lord. Father, I thank you so much because Jesus was willing to suffer even though knowing that people would reject him. And my prayer today, Lord, is that no one here inside this temple today would be counted as someone who has rejected Jesus. After so much he's done for us. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit may work with each and every one of us. And Lord, remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that will be sensitive to you and to your love. Help us, Lord, in all our questionings. Help us, Lord, to understand that at the bottom line, at the bottom of all of, all, of, all of it, Jesus wants to be the Savior of our life and the one who wants to make our life different. The one who wants to give us salvation for eternity. I praise your name and I ask, Lord, that you may bless us today, giving us a blessed remainder of the year in your presence. And that we may always be thankful for the great gift of Jesus Christ in our lives. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.